Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Cindy Sage and Nancy Evans, two national authorities on the impact of electromagnetic fields on our health. What are cell phones, cell towers, cordless phones, and other sources of electromagnetic fields doing to your health? Cindy and Nancy have some very interesting reports. Welcome to Friends Old and New of the New School. I'm Michael Lerner, and I'm here with two very dear friends and colleagues, Cindy Sage and Nancy Evans. Um, and we are going to be talking about the whole complex field of electromagnetic fields and their impact on human health. Uh, Cindy Sage and Nancy Evans are both real pioneers of this field. Um, Cindy Sage is a owner and principal of Sage Associates, a Santa Barbara-based consulting firm specializing in environmental planning and impact assessment. And Sage Associates does a wide variety of kinds of studies, geotechnical, hydrologic, agricultural, water supply, and environmental monitoring, electromagnetic field policy assessment, site investigations are examples of their areas of practice. Um, Cindy um, is a founding member of the Bioinitiative Working Group, and I would really say, although she certainly doesn't claim this, the driving force behind um, this extraordinary report called the Bioinitiative Report, a rationale for a biologically based public exposure standard for electromagnetic fields, ELF and RF. And this uh, report in three volumes was prepared by a set of really the outstanding scientists in the world in electromagnetic fields. Cindy, when did it come out? It was in uh, August of 2007. Came out in August of 2007, and the Bioinitiative Report had an extraordinary impact on European public policy with respect to electromagnetic field exposures, which Cindy can talk about, as can Nancy. Um, it continues to be a remarkable example of how. Um, bringing together important pieces of science in an emerging area of health concern can really change public policy and change the way people think about electromagnetic field exposure. Um, so I will actually, this is my copy, it's my only copy. I'm going to uh, pass these over to you and people can just take a look at them. They're also uh, some handouts out front that you can look at later. But uh, those of you who are listening and not seeing uh, the room here, these are three volumes of uh, dense technical material uh, put together by some of the leading scientists in the field. Nancy Evans is a health science writer and editor with more than three decades of experience in health science publishing. Um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1991 and became a leader in the grassroots breast cancer movement. She is currently 
health science consultant to the Breast Cancer Fund in San Francisco. And she is the original editor of an extraordinary publication called State of the Evidence, The Connection Between Environment and Breast Cancer, which has been published by the Breast Cancer Fund and is now in its fifth edition. Cindy and Nancy are the co-facilitators of the EMF Working Group of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. The Collaborative on Health and the Environment, many of you know, Commonweal serves its, as its administrative center, and it's a partnership of about 3,000 individuals and organizations around the world who are concerned with the impact of the environment on human health. And the collaborative has about a half dozen major working groups, one on cancer, one on learning disabilities, one on reproductive health, one on asthma, one on science, so on. Uh, uh, and it also has a single, what we call vector group, which is on electromagnetic fields. And that is the uh, working group that uh, Cindy and Nancy uh, co-facilitate. Uh, and um, so together they have made really a tremendous contribution to this important field. Now, the way we have agreed to do the New School session today, uh, Cindy will start with a 20-minute presentation, uh, and then uh, Nancy will follow up with uh, roughly a 7- to 10-minute commentary. And following that, um, I will ask a few questions, and then we will open it up. What I want to, one other thing I want to mention is that um, we spent the morning with about a half dozen Commonweal staff uh, walking all over the Commonweal site with about a dozen different measuring instruments, measuring radio fields and uh, electromagnetic fields. And I'm actually carrying for the next two days uh, a little um, device that will measure my total exposure, which I then uh, FedEx to Cindy, so she'll be able to see uh, a graph, my total exposure at home, at work, wherever I go. Um, and what I can tell you, I've, I've been following this field uh, for some years uh, with Cindy and Nancy's extraordinary guidance, but I'll tell you, there's something qualitatively different, as the staff people who did this can tell you, about walking around your office or your home and seeing uh, visually or in an auditory signal what you're actually exposed to. It's an extraordinary experience. So this is a field of inquiry that is about, I'd say, a decade behind the work on chemicals, fair to say. And um, the work on chemicals, which we've been involved with for the last uh, 30 years, um, has now a huge constituency in this country. The constituency of science and public concern on electromagnetic fields is at least a decade behind the chemical work. But it is developing very rapidly, particularly in Europe. And the United States is behind the, the curve of Europe and some other countries. So um, this is a fascinating field. It's a field where excessive and sometimes flaky claims are made by some people but it's also a field where there's a tremendous amount of solid science. And what Cindy and Nancy deserve great credit for is 
bringing the solid science into public and scientific discourse in a very disciplined way. So it's a great honor to have Cindy Sage and Nancy Evans with us. And Cindy, we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone, for coming this afternoon. Um, Nancy and I hope to give a presentation today that is short enough that there will still be plenty of time for questions and dialogue on this subject, because we don't know you yet, and we don't know what your specific interests and concerns are. So we're going to give you an overview of, of what the science and the public health implications are of electromagnetic fields and radio frequency radiation and talk a little bit about one issue in particular. And that issue is, what happens when a city thinks about going wireless, citywide Wi-Fi? Some of you may have heard of this because one of your neighboring communities here has been actively considering whether or not it should go citywide Wi-Fi. And it's been a debate, as it usually is. So I'll spend my time today talking in particular about the kinds of questions that cities and, and the people who live in those cities should think about before they make a commitment to this type of wireless technology. But first, I want to, um, I want to give you a very brief historical uh, retrospective of, of where this field has come. And when I say this field, what I'm talking about is the, the issue of electromagnetic fields in general, and the sources that we would include in that are power lines, and that issue about kids and power lines and cancer. That's where I started in this. Um, today, those fields are classified as a, an official carcinogen, a to-be or possible carcinogen under the World Health Organization IARC standards. Ten years ago, you if you want to say had, what IARC is, uh, the International Agency for Research in Cancer, and that is a, a a a subset or a part of the World Health Organization. And on the planet, they are the people that we trust to decide what is a carcinogen and what is not a carcinogen or cancer-causing agent. So, if you'd ask me ten years ago, if power power frequency fields, electromagnetic fields from power lines and appliances when you get close to them and interior wiring and so on would be a listed carcinogen, I would have said no way. So it's really come very quickly. But today our focus has shifted a bit and, and now we spend a lot more time looking at radio frequency and microwave fields, which are up the spectrum. They're related cousins. But they come to us because of the, the, this explosion of wireless technologies. Cell phones, cordless phones, Wi-Fi systems, um, wireless routers in your homes, uh, WiMACs in cities, and so on, that bring us generally wireless uh, communications, cell communications, and data transmission. So now we're looking at a much bigger set of environmental factors that for many years were thought to have no bioeffects whatsoever. The levels of energy involved in all of these things are so low that they were thought to not have any, any bioactive effect on the body at all. And that turns out not to be true. But in the last 30 or 40 years, what we have seen is a very slow accumulation of good science to say, maybe we should think before we deploy some of these technologies, particularly globally and particularly to children. So today we're sitting in a, in a world where you all know um, if you're 
if you're at all involved in commerce, uh, in, in, in education, um, or in normal daily living, you have choices to make about whether or not to go wireless. Do you use a cell phone? Do you use a BlackBerry? Do you use a Trio or any of the PDAs? Do you have a cordless phone at home? Or, or do you still have an old, funny, corded landline? We hope you do. They're the only non-wireless of those choices. Um, have you put in a wireless router so you can have your laptop connect to the internet everywhere you go? Is that your measure of technological success in the world and do you love that kind of life? Or are you still thinking about it? Well, part of what we're going to talk about today is what you should think about and what are your choices. So these are the general things we'll cover. And then we'd really like to know what your concerns are and, and what your questions are. And hopefully a large part of this discussion will be about what are my choices. And if I don't want these exposures, what can I do to at least reduce them? If I have to carry a BlackBerry for work or if I have to have a cell phone for a particular medical reason in my family, what can I do to be safer? So that's generally where we would like to go today. Um, the bio-initiative that Michael referred to was done, and I want to say this for, for this audience and also the listening audience, because if you take this subject up and if you look at this subject, you will find when you go out in the world and you, tr yeah, and, and you want to enter the dialogue about should we have wireless, should kids have cell phones, should that, that, that cell tower over at the Bolinas fire station be there or somewhere else, you're going to find a lot of people who say, there's no science on this. There's no evidence of harm. There's nothing there. And that is not a true claim. But for many years, when Nancy and I would go out and do these talks and address decision makers, people would say there's no evidence. So we wrote the bio initiative to be a truly independent view of the science done by the world's leading scientists in this area to produce the science in one place that people like you and like us, people, people could rely on to take the, to their decision makers and say, this is the evidence we have today. It is enough to warrant caution. It is enough to say, let's think before we deploy. And importantly, this report looks into the public health implications of adopting wireless technologies, where in daily life, if we keep going like this, we'll have layers and layers and layers and layers of these exposures. So you can refer to this document as a solid scientific and public health basis for urging caution when it comes to the deployment of wireless technologies and the placement of new power lines, for example. Cindy, let me just uh, interject on this. Just to give people a sense, what are some of the places around the world where you have presented on this or that have have cited the bioinitiative in terms of public policy? Immediately after the publication of the bioinitiative, which is only about 18 months ago, the European Environmental Agency, which is sort of like our US EPA, decided this was an issue of such great public health concern that they adopted this as one of their environmental health issues to highlight. And the director of the European Environmental Agency immediately issued a, a cautionary warning saying that there was reason for concern. 
particularly with respect to cell phones. In the, in the 18 months since its publication, um, I've been presenting at the Royal Society of London twice now in, uh, in meetings that have been called by concerned groups in Europe, particularly uh, people in, the, in the, um, the Scandinavian and Western European countries, who have much more illness now related to these exposures because they've been using cell phones longer. They have much more exposure. So they've come to the table and, and a number of countries in Europe have now either formally or informally adopted lower standards that were recommended in the bio-initiative. So we've seen the European Parliament take the issue up. They've adopted uh, cautionary recommendations. Um, and we think that, um, we think that in, in, the, in the coming year, we perhaps will see France adopt some very much lower levels, more in line with the bio-initiative recommendations. Belgium has already done this. Greece has already done this. Luxembourg has already done this. And... Um, the uh, French National Library, well, I won't steal your thunder. You're going to talk about that later. But let me say that it has had a major impact on policymaking and thinking in Europe, which we're hoping will spread to the U.S., but Thank it you. hasn't yet. We put this on the, on the web at www.bioinitiative.org, bioinitiative, one word, .org, so you can download it for free. It went around the world very quickly that way, and then more recently it's... Um, been published in a peer-reviewed journal in a fashion, so um, solid science there. So what happens in a community when you think about citywide Wi-Fi? What are the pros and cons? What kind of issues does it bring up for a city, and what might you want to know about it before you launch into this? In Santa Barbara, where I, I spend a lot of time, this has been an issue. Santa Barbara is a resort destination that promotes itself with uh, you know, ecotourism, healing, natural environment, beautiful environment. Bolinas is a very beautiful rural environment which we know you cherish. And so any intrusion of environmental toxins or contaminants should concern you. And this issue of wireless is one you ought to look at very carefully. Um, recently, Sebastopol did look at this as a city. And Sebastopol has done a masterful job, or some, some of the groups there in terms of getting the issues out on the table before the population there that would be affected and before the decision makers. And it isn't a done deal there yet, but they, Sandy Maurer and her group have laid down um, some very important groundwork to bring the issues to decision makers. Well, what are they? What are the possible health concerns? And with wireless, we're talking about exquisitely low levels of electromagnetic fields and radio frequency, but they are still bioactive. And over time, with chronic exposure, they can present uh, both short-term and long-term health impacts. They would, the, 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 the wireless in general, again, would cover cell phone, cordless phone, Wi-Fi, wireless internet, school wireless systems, which we're very concerned about, and RFID, or those systems that, where you can tag something and then you can find where that item went, whether it's a piece of, of clothing or you know, it, it, it's a printer cartridge, something somebody marked so they could track it. It's being done with radio frequency. We're going to talk about the alternatives to wireless, and there are good alternatives, and we're going to talk about blanket Wi-Fi for cities and also for schools, because these are really serious issues for schools. Uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about what are the costs of guessing wrong, and then I think it's important to look at what other communities 
around the world have done related to wireless and who chooses for it and who chooses not for it. Because very revealing. In, the, in addition to the common sources that we've listed before, or I've listed before here, I want to concentrate your attention to BlackBerry and TRIO units or any PDA units that you carry on your body because these turn out to be a very, very large source of emissions, even more than cell phones. They are a particular case. We will cover only that much. I'd also like to point out on this list that compact fluorescent bulbs are an issue, and it may be that you're going to really want to think hard about installing those. We want to underscore the importance of considering wireless environments for children, both the kinds that they create for themselves with cell and cordless phone use, but also these chronic 24-hour-a-day wireless environments that may be coming to your local school. If you look at a depiction of the radio frequency radiation that is absorbed into varying size heads. And here we have a five-year-old child on the left and the profile of radiation absorbed into the head going probably two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the head versus in the middle graphic, a 10-year-old child where the head size is larger, th the skull is thicker and so on, penetration of the radio frequency radiation not quite as much, and then for the adult it's, it's quite a bit less. When we think about children, we think a lot about their exposures being quite different from those of adults for the common cell phone and cordless phone exposures that you get. For whole body exposure, we don't have graphics, but we would be equally or more concerned about children. Typical cell towers, I think everyone has probably seen one or two. You've got, you've got a, a major installation here in town by the fire station. You've got a, a couple of towers there. Sometimes they can be stealth, but certainly they're a very large community exposure. And when you think about Wi-Fi or wireless in a, a, a citywide Wi-Fi blanket situation, it's much less than being near the, one of these. It is probably one thousandth of what or less than what you would get standing within a few hundred to a thousand feet of a cell tower. And yet, it is still bioactive and it's still important for your health to know that. Uh, Cindy, just one point because we talked about this earlier and it's so important. Uh, the, the evidence that we know on endocrine disrupting chemicals is that these are not monotonic curve responses. So what we're talking about is that that it is possible for a signal to be biologically active at a lower uh, intensity than it may be at a higher intensity. And so your point about Wi-Fi being much less than a cell tower, but nonetheless, that doesn't necessarily mean that biologically it's a less significant exposure. So that's an important point to make. And it's true, in, in the case of, of radio frequency radiation, some of the, the, the lower levels are actually more bioactive. And, the, and one in, in, in one particular instance, if you, if you hold a cell phone to your head, there is absorbed energy and there is an effect on the blood-brain barrier, which is very, very important physiologically. It allows the blood-brain barrier to become leaky and when things pass across the blood-brain barrier, you can take toxins and, and, uh, and molecules in that don't belong there. They can kill neurons and they can cause damage. And it happens that this effect is more effective with a cell phone that does not produce as much radiation in comparison to one that produces more radiation, meaning at a lower level.
the lower levels of exposure are more effective at opening up the blood-brain barrier. So it isn't, it just, there isn't a direct correlation between the amount of radiation going into your head and the effect on the body. It's not always proportional. But we don't have all the answers yet, so we're not quite sure what to make of those studies. And if they're true, what does that mean for people who say, I use my cell phone at my head, no, I use my cell phone out here on a wired earpiece? I mean, might they be, might they be equally risky? They're, they're questions we don't have all the answers to. The installation of, of Wi-Fi in cities is usually done by installing lots of small repeater antennas around town. Uh, they can be put on power poles, and if you've been through a city and you've seen these little short uh, uh, repeater antennas, um, they generally will be along major city streets, and they might cover a few blocks of area. If you go down to Palo Alto, uh, University Avenue has these, and I can, having measured it, I can tell you that it goes off a couple of blocks on each side in terms of coverage, meaning conveniently you can go in and you can light up your laptop and you can connect to the Internet sitting out at an outdoor cafe or you know, walking down the street if you choose to do it. But everyone in that zone is being affected all day and all night with radio frequency radiation at a low level. A diagram would look something like this. Um, in, in comparison to having a, a cell site maybe every quarter or half a mile if you were simply talking about uh, cell phone radiation. So this is smaller but more, more intensively deployed antennas throughout town for a citywide Wi-Fi system. Um, one of the, uh, we're, we're, we're skipping back here a bit, but in terms of the kinds of things that create radio frequency exposure, compact fluorescent bulbs that we're now installing everywhere for energy conservation actually turn out to be a big source of radio frequency radiation that will ride along your electrical wiring. And if you don't want to have wireless exposure, don't put these in. These are extremely bioactive. What you can do for energy conservation is use LED, liquid um, uh, light-emitting diode bulbs, LED bulbs. They're very low in energy consumption. They're about equally expensive as compact fluorescents are, but they'll last a long time. Or go back to incandescent lights for the small amount of energy savings you get in a typical home. It's really not a good trade-off, in our opinion, for the radio frequency that you produce. Is that the same for any fluorescent lights, the long tubes as well? Because it's pretty much the same technology. All fluorescent lights produce radio frequency bursts on your electrical system, and it's true. And, and, and more, the ballast on a compact fluorescent bulb, or a, a long fluorescent bulb, is in itself a big emitter. But these compact fluorescent bulbs seem to be even more bioactive based on you know, early deployment uh, responses. So uh, there's something special about these and especially noxious about them. So before all, school districts and you know, <coughs> commercial office buildings and places you like to go, go completely green, they think they're going green by installing these, you may want to suggest that they can be green, but not this way. What are the possible health concerns? Well, some of the short-term uh, health concerns that are rather well documented now would include impairment of performance and memory, uh, concentration difficulties, uh, loss of short-term memory, or the capacity to lay down memory, 
disorientation, balance problems, and dizziness. Uh, the ringing in the ears uh, is a very common indicator that you are in an environment with radio frequency, even if you don't know you are, but you have developed this constant ringing or buzzing in the ears. It's a very good indicator. One of the very best indicators is sleep disruption or insomnia. And this is true even down to these very low Wi-Fi levels. When it's almost hard now to travel to go into um, you know, any city, even a small city, and find a hotel or motel that doesn't offer wireless. You know, they love it. They think you love it. Well, a lot of people cannot sleep. And they wake up and they think, I didn't drink any coffee before I went to bed. But it's very much a, a, a sensation like that of being hyper alert and being unable to go back to sleep or having it take a very long time to go to sleep. Now, that may not seem, you know, maybe that's a temporary inconvenience for some of you, but what happens in a neighborhood where all of your neighbors start putting in these little Wi-Fi systems and they're overlapping your house? And you know this because you turn on your laptop and you get four or five or six or eight different listings for Wi-Fi opportunities? Mm. Well, you're in their zone and they're affecting your sleep. So, um, skin rashes and worsening allergy conditions are real markers. And Ole Johansson's work in the Bioinitiative helped to document that we're actually seeing blood chemistry biomarkers. We're seeing changes, uh, changes in mast cells, changes in things that are, are, are known markers for allergies. So if you find you've developed um, uh, sinusitis repeatedly and you've had it for a year and you don't understand that it might be related to your cell or cordless phone use or chronic wireless use, you should think about that. Uh, dependency is going to be a, a real hot issue here, but there is evidence, although not proof, that these exposures over time are physiologically addictive. They operate on the same system in your brain as do other classic addiction substances. And if that turns out to be true, what kind of a world have we created where we give kids cell and cordless phones and they're a drug delivery device. They are a device that biochemically is indistinguishable from other addictive substances. We won't even talk about crackberries today, but you've all heard the term <laughs> crackberry. Resilience or changes in immune function are clear from the evidence, both animal evidence and human evidence. Uh, oxidative stress, which is free radical damage leading to premature aging and damage of DNA is all but proven. I mean, the, the evidence now is so clear at levels that are associated with cell phone and cordless phone use, not yet with Wi-Fi level use. But the studies haven't been done yet, so we don't know. Heat shock protein uh, is a chemical biomarker that indicates cellular stress. It's a, it's, it's a measure that the cell is in trouble, it's hollering for help, and it puts out chemicals that say so. This happens with uh, chemicals, pesticides, heat damage, and many other uh, things that make cells unhappy. It absolutely happens with people and with plants under radio frequency or ELF, extra low, uh, extremely low frequency exposures. So short term, those things, and you can measure these things, and long term, there is good indication of cancer. And we can talk more about cell and cordless phone cancer rates later as we have time. But for now, we're going to move on and stay in the Wi-Fi range and talk about these cities that are considering chronic exposure 24-7 to wireless. Uh, 
Um, it is particularly difficult for a city uh, that promotes tourism and promotes uh, green and healthy and sustainable living and wants to have that image, an image of healing and spas and you know, restoration and so on. The, the, the traditional California coastal community way of bringing people in uh, to, to restore health and, and, and mental wellness is really put at risk by this choice. Electrosmog, which is a European term for what we're talking about, is really a physical stressor. People don't sleep well. Uh, if, you if you are in a town where you're going to spend a whole lot of money at day spas or in resorts that promote meditation and yoga and healing and so on, the last thing you would want to do is to have wireless so they can't sleep at night. So they're their bodies are unhappy. Um, these, these are marketing image issues, but we think they're important to bring to cities because cities frequently will say, there's no evidence. Well, maybe there's not enough to convince them, but if you can convince them that economically they will suffer for having made a bad choice, it might be an effective way to deal with decision makers. Guessing wrong is very expensive. Um, if you can, if you can point out a city's budget related to uh, tourism, and you can point out that there are no choices left when a city goes Wi-Fi in a blanket fashion, because whether or not that hotel or the one next to it or the one next to it installs their own Wi-Fi, the city has done so in a blanket fashion, and no one can opt out. No one who's electrosensitive or happens not to like wireless will be able to be in that environment anywhere. So it becomes a destination people hop over. They don't stop. And certainly, um, as, as cities and particularly the resort industries within them recognize this as an environmental contaminant to be avoided, there will be um, a comparison among cities that do wireless and that don't. And we think the cities that don't do wireless but who can still provide wired alternatives for Internet will be the winners. What are the alternatives? Well, wired Internet is absolutely available. I mean, even, even out here at Commonweal, we're, we're, we're far off the path, but there's perfectly good laptop and computer access through wired means that has none of the wireless bio effects. So choose for that. In your own homes, go cable modem. Go Cat5 wiring in your schools or T, you know, bring in your T1 lines. But we do not think that this unlimited uh, deployment of wireless is a good idea. And we do think that people will end up having to take this out and it will be an expensive choice. Having made a bad choice, it'll have to come out. You'll have to install the other. Retrofitting is expensive. Do it right the first time. At least take a wait-and-see attitude. And in your own homes, you may want to think about installing um, uh, even the choice of a wireless router that you might be putting in for a firewall on your systems is going to have enough wireless exposure in your home to be a factor biologically. So it might be a good idea to go for all wired, no wireless router, right down to that very low level they, they emit. What are other wellness icons doing? Well, we did a quick survey in Europe thinking that the biggest spas in Europe wouldn't make bad choices because this is a more developed uh, environmental issue and health issue for them. And here's what we found. We looked at, uh, I don't know, I think seven or nine of these, and these are world-class spas, and including Baden-Baden. 
And here's what we found in Switzerland and Germany and Austria, none of them had wireless and none of them will go wireless. They all laughed. Uh, we had, a, we had a, an Austrian colleague of ours do the surveys and he came back and he said it was great. He said, they laughed at us. They said, why would we, why would we cut our own throats economically? People wouldn't come here. People know better. How could we sell health and wellness and sell wireless? So that was revealing. Didn't sell in Santa Barbara though, I can't. <laughs> what can you personally do? Use a corded phone. Really limit your cordless use. Avoid cell use or just severely limited or use a wired earpiece. But generally, you have to go back to the corded phones to have no exposure. Avoid Bluetooth, which is a wireless form of uh, not holding the phone. You know, if you don't have to hold the cell phone to your head, you can have a Bluetooth. But guess what? That thing is radiating. It's in your ear, and it's radiating all the time. At least most of the models that, that we know about radiate all the time, not just when you're talking. So cumulatively, that dose might be very large. And avoid wireless Internet. Um, do use a cable modem. If you're in your car a lot and you're driving and you need to be on that phone, then get a, a built-in car phone jack where the antenna is outside and there's a speaker up here so you don't have this phone at your head and no radiation inside. Please really consider no use at all by children of cell or cordless phones. When you carry your phone, if you must, switch it to off. If you're going to wear it on your body in particular, have it off. And when you want to check in, do it like this. Use it on speakerphone. And if, uh, again, if you're going to have to use a BlackBerry or a PDA, absolutely don't wear those on your body when they're on. And when you need to use them, um, put them at some distance from you and use a speakerphone or a wired earpiece because those emissions are triple or quadruple or more what a normal cell phone is. So cities, we really urge cities to take a, a wait-and-see attitude on wireless. They can always do it later. Maybe there'll be safer ways in the future. But get your co connectivity ver via wired technologies and make wise personal choices for now. Because the evidence and the trend of the evidence indicates that these levels that we used to think were safe and had no effects are bioactive at... 1,000 to 100,000 to a million times lower levels than the standards allow today. So the only choices that will help you are the ones you make yourself because our standards today allow all of these things. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cindy. <laughs> so just to take a short break from a presentation, let's take the one question that you asked. Excuse me, ma'am. You had a question, we'll take it now, that you asked about, uh, <laughs> yeah. I did. So <laughs> <light bulb>. Different <laughs> types of different types. Oh yes, I, I had heard that, that, um, that, 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 that some of the brands are different and because they haven't, because they're oblivious to the whole things, they're not noticing that, but that they could easily make them so that, that they're not so bad. The, the compact fluorescence? Yeah, she said that this woman who, that from Canada who came to Fairfax two yeah. years ago, she said that um, it's something that could easily be fixed if anybody acknowledged there was a problem in it, that some of the ones actually are better than others, but I don't mm -hmm. know which. Was that Mag to have us? 
Yeah. She's a woman from Canada. She yeah. came to the a professor. Fair. Yeah, she's very interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's really an expert on compact fluorescent bulbs and the dirty electricity that they produce. And she's been doing surveys, so her her observations would be good. But generally, you won't be able to tell. So compact fluorescence in general should be considered to be a toxic product. And they also contain some mercury as well, so come right back over here. Um, on the LED lights, Magda does make a point that there are, are some, L, almost all LEDs are fine. There are a few she's tested that are not. But generally, if you are the consumer and you have the choice, you should go for the, the LED light and not the compact fluorescent. Or just go back to the regular incandescent mm -hmm. and drive a few miles less a month and, you, and the energy savings are the same. So one more question, yeah. yeah I, I was just going to mention, it was my understanding that the compact fluorescents that were made for Europe had capacitors in them and that this does help with the dirty electricity. And, and do you know anything about that? Well, we've heard this, but, you know, we don't have data on it, and, and, and I wish we did. But since they're not available here, it doesn't become a choice for you. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to stop the questions now because I want to get to Nancy's presentation, and then we'll come back to questions. Nancy Evans. And thank you all for being here. Uh, Michael mentioned earlier that um, I was the originating editor of State of the Evidence, uh, what it, the connection between breast cancer and the environment. And you might think, well, what does, what does EMF have to do with breast cancer, um, particularly wireless? We don't know about wireless yet in in conjunction with breast cancer, but we do know that there are uh, power frequency um, EMF exposures that increase the risk of breast cancer. We know this from residential studies and from occupational studies. Um, and when it comes to something like wireless, which is a whole body 24-7 um, exposure, uh, like Wi-Fi, I'm sorry, not just wireless, it's hard to believe that, that it might not be connected with breast cancer. Um, and no one has looked yet in any depth at whether wireless radio frequency um, radiation increases the risk of breast cancer. But this is how I got to the issue and this is how I came into the collaboration with uh, Cindy I guess about almost 15 years ago when I was working on Rachel's Daughters, um, searching for the causes of breast cancer, the film that I made. And um, we had to deal with EMF then because one of our uh, women with breast cancer in the film had been a lines person for um, Pac Bell and had breast cancer at 37. So I've been following the science with Cindy's help ever since and um, Michael was interested in it as well. And so that collaboration has produced quite a number of, of products. Um, first of all, from State of the Evidence, the book, we now have two peer-reviewed articles that were in the International Journal of Occupational and Environmental Health based on the findings in this booklet. And that was a real, a real milestone. Recently, um, Cindy and I produced a fact sheet on radiation and cancer for the President's Cancer Panel, 
This is going into a National Cancer Institute report, which will be sent to the president for um, consideration of changes in the in the federal policies related to cancer and to put cancer prevention on the issue and on the agenda and not just the issue of finding a cure for all the various cancers. And there are copies of this in the, uh, in the lobby. Um, it's also online on the CHE website, the Collaborative for Health and the Environment, and it covers both medical radiation and non-ionizing radiation, that is EMF. And Cindy and Dr. David Carpenter, who is a noted epidemiologist, public health expert, also produced um, an article in Pathophysiology, which is a peer-reviewed journal based on their earlier work in the Bioinitiative on the public health implications of wireless technologies. And this is, uh, there are copies of this in the lobby as well. And then we have uh, a couple of other things, one of which is what we call sources of EMF exposure and how to avoid them. Copies of that. This is what you do. This is what Michael calls news you can use um, in your daily life and around your children. Um, it's also on the, on the CHE website. So those are some of our, our work products. And in, there are a couple of, of issues that make this a difficult um, subject to talk about. People are concerned, but there, in this country, there has been a great silence in the media about any possible health effects related to wireless technologies. And when you look at the advertising in the San Francisco Chronicle, for example, and see that Verizon and the other wireless companies are helping to sustain that failing newspaper, um, you can see why they don't publish very much on it, even though there is real science. But the real science is coming from Europe and from Asia and not from this country because there has been little or no EMF research since 1998 which was before everybody in this country had a cell phone. And because of that, um, people really don't know what the issues are and what to do about them. Um, but in other countries where they do know about the issues and where they do have national healthcare systems so they would like to keep people healthy, there is a lot of noise about wireless and cell phones and uh, public exposure. For example, the, Fre the French National Library in Paris uh, closed down the Wi-Fi systems in all of their Paris libraries because staff and patrons were complaining about health effects. The German government has warned citizens not to have Wi-Fi networks in their homes. And some schools in England and in France have taken out their wireless systems. So they're paying attention over there, but we're not getting the memo on this side of the water. Um, so there is a lot of resistance. 
and there is a lot of denial and um, obfuscation from the vested interests. So it's very worrisome. And for that reason, uh, we all have a lot to do. Thank you very much. Sure. Okay, I'm opening it to questions. Yes? Could, could you say, please, what the, um, the levels are in Europe and the levels here in terms of regulation? The exact figure, do you know the figures? Yeah, actually, they're in the bio-initiative, and if you, if you want that in a written form, because it, there are long tables that describe how you calculate for each frequency or kind of exposure what the allowable public safety limit is. They're a little bit higher, generally. They're a little bit higher levels allowed in Europe than there are here. And the European levels also apply to Canada, and they apply to Australia, and probably some of the Asian countries. But generally, they're in the... the um, thousand microwatt per centimeter squared range for exposures that that you would measure in this room for example just remember the number a thousand microwatts per centimeter squared um, for p for cell for some cell phone frequencies and yet the bio effects are clearly occurring when you have a whole body exposure to cell phone frequencies like from a tower down at about a hundredth or a tenth of a microwatt per centimeter squared so more than a thousand-fold lower. So what that means is that whether you're in Europe or whether you're in the U.S., it doesn't matter very much because the standards are, that are allowable are up here and the bioeffects are down here. I just, want, just one second. I just want to welcome the AmeriCorps folks who are here who are doing a great service to Commonweal, taking, doing fire precautions for our... Um, our forest and helping us out. So we thank you all. And I just want to make a point of saying, don't be intimidated by the number of people in the room. If you have a question, we want to hear your questions. So yes, go ahead. Yes. Uh, I live uh, in uh, Point Reyes at Walnut Place, uh, senior housing for low-income seniors. It's taken me years to find a place that I can actually live in. I have a, a very serious chemical sensitivity. I find a place I can live in. Now we're wired, or whatever you call it, not wired, for Wi-Fi. I live mm -hmm. in it 24 hours mm -hmm. a day. And it's scaring the heck out of me. And I've been very silent about it. And I'm just, but I've been living in fear. And I have some of the symptoms, but not, not all of them. I, like, I sleep real well still. Um, and I'm just wondering, what the heck am I going to do about it? I mean, besides move, I can't move because it's so hard to find a place to live when you have chemical sensitivity <clears throat> and on low income. Who can I... Well, obviously, you know, the issue, the issue now is just gaining enough visibility, that you have lots of resources. If, if you choose to make this an issue that, that, that you want to talk to this association about, and is it a homeowners or management no, association? HUD. HUD, and, HUD mm -hmm. and also um, uh, ecumenical housing uh, authority or whatever it is. Well, it wouldn't be difficult to put together a package of information that you yeah. could submit with a letter requesting at a minimum they turn it off at night. Mm -hmm. Unplug it at night. As simple yeah. as that, as a start. We're recommending for neighborhoods now that as a basic baby step, 
you go out into your, your neighborhood where you know people, and you ask that this be a no Wi-Fi zone at night, turn it off, let the kids sleep. Mm -hmm. And we think that kind of uh, beginning is a good one. Uh, in addition, if this is a senior's yeah. housing um, opportunity, we have great concern that this causes disorientation and is likely to lead to more falling. Yeah. And falling is already a problem for people who, uh, you know, are, are, are in their elder years. So there are, there are good reasons to argue that it's a bad choice mm -hmm. when they could have simply either put Wi-Fi in one, like a smoker's corner, yeah. put it one place people can go if they want it, and unplug everybody else, mm -hmm. or provide wired cabling. Mm -hmm. And those would be very good alternatives that would, would not provide any radiation exposure at all. So, did you have a question that you were going to ask? You, yeah? Me? No, you. Gentleman here. Yeah. I actually did have a question, go, but I haven't, I haven't really uh, yeah. made an indication. But you mentioned uh, uh, effect as far as uh, bioactive with DNA. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that if you are able to. Right. Um, the, um, the, the best indication that uh, both um, extremely low frequency fields from, you know, from 60 hertz power or electricity and from radio frequency radiation at levels we're talking about for cell phones and cordless phones damages DNA. And there is not. There are multiple. There are probably several hundred studies, uh, most of them profiled in the Bio Initiative in the chapter by Henry Lai on genotoxicity. And although not every study shows DNA damage, more than half of them do. And that's all you need as an indication that exposures to radio frequency radiation and electromagnetic fields damage DNA. There is some question about whether it interferes with the repair capacity of the body to fix DNA that's become damaged, because that's one of the things that happens in our bodies. But both of them, as you can imagine, are bad. And over time, with accumulated DNA damage, and in particular, damage just enough so the cell doesn't self-destruct, there's no apoptosis, but those cells in, in a damaged form go on and continue to reproduce. That's a very worrisome situation, and it's clearly happening at levels we're exposed to from cell and cordless phones. Other questions, please. Yeah. Um, have you ever, do you have anything in the Bioinitiative report about its effect on water, about radio frequency effect on water? Um, I'd have to say no. Right. There's a guy. Goldworthy in Scotland, who's got some really interesting studies. Andrew Goldsworthy is a, a, a retired biologist in the UK who's published some very self-published some very interesting studies about the effect of radio frequency and um, and EMF on uh, calcium in the body and the way calcium is metabolized and. Uh, there is some evidence to indicate that if you interfere with proper calcium metabolism, you can create some of the bioeffects that we are seeing. But again, it's an area where we don't have enough science yet to be able to say with, uh, you know, any any confidence that that is a mechanism we should be concerned about. Yes. Do you have any um, information on some of the um, practices or? Um, they're kind of secretive, I understand, but that the military, our military um, developing 
um, you know, future technologies to track people and drop bombs and stuff, such as um, sending beams up into the ionosphere that, that then can be directed back on a target. <coughs> Do you know anything about that kind of thing? It's the HARP um, stuff. And I, I, I've just heard about it. And I, I'm asking because I had this uh, spell of waking up wired in the middle of the night and um, lived in a cabin in the woods. And as far as I know, there weren't any other sources. I can't, I can't answer your question to your satisfaction, I'm sure. I do know about the HARP project, and I know it's microwave energy that is directed into the ionosphere for communications around the curvature of the Earth. And many people have great concern because the levels of microwave energy are, are, are enormous. But whether or not it's used as a directed um, non-lethal weapon, I don't know. However, there a lot of the, the radio frequency microwave um, science is done by the military, and some of it's published, and some of it says that these levels that we're talking about that are ex really subtle energies, exquisitely low, if properly modulated, can stun and startle and confuse. So it's, it's tacit admission by the military, at least, that these are very effective fields when applied in certain w in ways. And of course, our, our, our concern there is that, well, we're all getting this indiscriminate layering of exposures all the time at levels even higher than the ones I've just talked about. So what are they doing? But they're legal. We're in compliance. Other questions? Yes? Um, I just want to kind of rephrase the question I asked earlier. Because um, I understood from what you said that the, um, the European EPA has adopted more stringent guidelines than here in the US. Can you say what sort of percentage um, more safe, as it were, they are there than here? I didn't understand your question. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, there are a few countries in Europe that have now adopted thresholds or target levels that are far lower. On the or uh, Belgians, uh, the Belgian government has now, through its constitutional court, said that cities can adopt their own levels within within Belgium, and the first to do so has adopted a standard of four volts per meter, and I think it compares to around 45 or 50 volts per meter uh, that preceded it. So it's it's far lower. And in Salzburg, there is a target limit of a tenth of a microwatt per centimeter squared for outdoor power density for cell phone frequencies, uh, where the standard for Europe is about 1,000 microwatts per centimeter squared, so 10,000 times lower. And here in the U.S.? The existing standard for PCS cell phone frequencies is 1,000 microwatts per centimeter squared. For 8 to 900 megahertz, self, sort of the older forms of cell phones, um, the standard, you have to calculate it, but if I generally picked 869 megahertz, which is a cell phone frequency that AT&T used a lot a few years ago, the standard, the limit, was 580 microwatts per centimeter squared. And yet we've seen in, in uh, the Carpinteria Summerlin firefighters, a group that I worked with down in Santa Barbara County, that when they put a cell tower next to their fire station in Summerland, where you could only measure maybe a half a microwatt or a tenth of a microwatt per centimeter squared within that fire station, 580 was legal, they had a half or a tenth, and they were incapacitated. Mm -hmm. If they would sleep in that fire station for a few nights running, as they often did, they could not think. 
They could not remember protocols. They could not perform their normal functions. They went to court over this. They filed depositions, which are sworn testimony. And these are not whiners. These are healthy firefighters. They called it a Nextel hangover that they had because they couldn't think. Well, isn't it also true that the International Association of Firefighters passed a resolution asking that no more cell towers be placed above uh, fire stations because what you're describing was so commonly true uh, among many members, uh, certainly around the United States. I remember that as a, a re isn't that correct? That is correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just Santa Barbara. That was four or five years it's, ago. Uh, and, and doesn't this whole, one of the uh, um, issues I don't think we've brought out yet is that, um, and help me get this right, uh, Cindy and Nancy, but that part of the challenge in this area is that you may with certain exposures see effects, but that we don't always understand the mechanism by which the effect takes place. So that you, uh, that the thermal impacts of some of these things, the mechanism is understood. But if I have this right, the non-thermal impacts, you can see the effects on tissue or you know, cell cultures or health, but we don't necessarily understand the mechanism. And part of the scientific debate is because we don't. And now, do I have that right, or am I inaccurate in that? No, that's true. Um, when, people, when people argue about science, they frequently will say, until you have proof, we're going to do nothing. And proof usually is a whole series of tests that have to be met. And one of those tests usually is, well, if it's harming people, you have to know how it's doing it, right down to the molecular level. Now, that turns out not to be true for a lot of things in science and medicine. But it's being used in this field to impede action, policy action, because we can't say exactly which receptor in the brain, exactly which molecule, exactly which cascade. But what we do know enough to say now that works, is working, is that we are seeing DNA damage. And DNA damage through non-thermal, meaning no, there's no heating going on. DNA damage is such a good marker for effect that is taken to be adverse over the long term that, that that's all we need to know. With, you, you can get DNA damage without ionizing radiation, breaking chemical bonds. You can get this through, uh, you can develop cancers through changes in hormone systems and many other pathways that are non-thermal and, and, and that don't require ionizing uh, or breaking of chemical bonds. So um, that we have heat shock protein, which is one one way to get to damage, that we can have DNA damage, another way, free radical damage, to get to DNA damage. Um, there may be more, but we don't need more. And one of the reasons why we wanted very much to publish the science basis for this is to show people that the, the state of the evidence is such that it's very persuasive and it, we should be taking it with confidence now to decision makers and saying so. We don't have to know every mechanism that it operates by. We don't have to have every step in the chain, but we have enough to say it is at a point now where we could regulate, for, particularly for power frequency fields. And we're very, very close to being able to say that for radio frequency radiation.
The problem with the current standards is that they are based on the idea that in order to harm you, that the radiation has to burn you and it has to do it within 30 minutes. So there is no standard that addresses non-thermal effects or chronic exposure over time. So that's why the standards are so far out of whack, is because of this thermal, non-thermal debate. But just so that I understand, even if you can demonstrate DNA damage or other biological markers as a result of a non-thermal exposure, does that mean that because you can show the DNA damage that you understand the mechanism? In other words, it, it takes it to a lower, a higher level of resolution, but it still doesn't tell you how the thing is causing the DNA damage, does it? I mean, isn't it a mystery still how the non-thermal effects influence tissue, or is that if, well, if, if you can show DNA damage, does that mean that, that to a skeptical scientist you have shown the mechanism? I think, I think what's, what's, what's uh, um, important in, in what you've just said is to a skeptical scientist, because right. at some point people simply jump the fence and say, yeah, I guess there's enough evidence and I agree. But we know with free radical damage, the, the creation of hydroxyl radicals, that interact and damage cells in, in many different ways, that this is taken to be causal. If we were talking about a chemical, we would have causal evidence. But because we're talking about something that is rather new to science, meaning 40 or 50 years and not several hundred, people tend to say, yeah, but not being able to, to assimilate the idea that these very subtle energies actually do the very same thing as some chemicals that cause these damages and the mechanisms are, are taken for granted. So the, we're really being, in this field, subjected to a higher standard of proof, perhaps, than we should be. But, but here's the thing, you know, and the way science moves along is really by lurches and it's very, very nonlinear in what's accepted in terms of scientific consensus. But today, we have 30 years of DNA damage studies, animals, laboratory, human. And we have this deployment of cell and cordless phones. And we have good epidemiological evidence, not from one lab, not from two labs, but from 15 or 20, that say if you use a cell phone at your head for 10 years or more and you're an adult, you have more than doubled your risk of malignant brain tumor. And we have data which says if you start using a cell or cordless phone as a child, by the time you're in the 20 to 29 year age group, you have a 540% increased risk for that child of a malignant brain tumor. So we have collected evidence along the way. Epidemiology, what's happening to humans, what we would have predicted from those lab studies done a long time ago on DNA. So I think it takes the assemblage of data for people to finally say, well, you know, if we don't do something about this, we had enough evidence way back when, but we didn't act. At some point, it becomes enough evidence for science and for public health. But it's always got the component of what people think what public 
sentiment is about these and how acceptable it is for children to be subjected to something like this. So when we act is really a matter of when collectively we decide we have enough information, not just do we know the mechanism. And we will never have enough evidence to convince industry that anything is bad as long as there's money in it. So you ha the public has to decide when is enough enough. We waited way too long on tobacco. I want to go to people who haven't spoken yet. So we have one, two, three. Uh, lady in the back there first, yeah. Uh, at what point do you think the World Health Organization is going to change their EMF conclusion? Just, just your opinion. Nancy and I are smiling at each other, and um, I, can, I, can, I can feel the sigh rising. Um, well, where are we today? The World Health Organization has uh, commissioned 10 years' worth of studies, $50 million worth of brain tumor studies across 13 countries in, in Europe and Canada. And what they have not done is publish the result, because the results at least taken for those countries that have published independently so far, is that there is a brain tumor risk at 10 years and, and, and longer, as I've just told you. And the final report is being held up at WHO because there is bitter fighting among those people who want to say there's a problem and among those people who don't want to say there's a problem. Until we see those, it's called the Interphone series of studies, until we see the final published, um, the World Health Organization doesn't have to take a position. And I think that it's as, it, it's as likely as not that they will never publish. They are two years, they've had the data for two years, and they've been fighting all this time. And now governments who funded these studies through the WHO are going to WHO and saying, hey, what did we pay for? And why aren't you publishing? And why can't you scientists get together? Did you waste the money? Or are you afraid to tell the world that's already gone way too far? with the technology that we have a big problem. So we're waiting to see. Yes. Um, well, I thought that what you had said about um, addiction levels relative to uh, like cell phone use and the kind of things that um, I feel like a lot of younger people are using today. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a cell phone. I know one person who has very limited use of a cell phone. <laughs> I mean, that are that is my age and that is interested in this. And I'm interested in the way that you perceive young people moving forward with this because I think that might be such a large source of resistance because mm -hmm. in terms of our, I, I am lumping myself with the group because yeah. I am one, um, but in terms of the convenience of, of everything that we have access to and the way we're encouraged to use it, I just have a lot of concern for how, how younger people are going to have access to this information and how we're going to move forward with this because there'll be so much consistent resistance to it. Well, the information is out there and young people will pay attention to the information if it comes from within their peer group saying, you know, I read this, I heard this, I saw this. This is scary because it is very, very worrisome because you start, I mean, I have three grandchildren and They've all been on cell phones far too long. Um, and I'm sure they think that, you know, their grandmother is just a worrywart. They don't take me seriously. They don't use earpieces. And my son has a Wi-Fi network in their home. But I think the information, now that you have it, 
You know, it has to come from within the peer group before they pay attention. But it's real. It's not just worried grandmothers. Well, maybe now's a good time to talk about safer, safer use of a lot of these devices because we um, were, were asked frequently, well, you know, what can I do to be safer? I won't ask you to make me safe because there may be no way to do it with this technology, and we don't know the answer yet, but how to be safer. Um, so if we're ready to move into that area, I, I think we should spend time there. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, one of the first things to know is that if you reduce your exposure, if you reduce the amount of time you hold a cell phone or a cordless phone to your head, you can greatly eliminate, I mean, you're, you can eliminate your chance of being one of the unlucky ones. Um, don't put a cell phone or a cordless phone to your head anymore at all. I mean, just as a matter of practice, use speakerphone or do texting, and don't wear it while it's on your body, and you will have greatly reduced your exposure. Don't have it on while it's on your body. Don't have it on right. while it's on your body. No, thank you. Um, we can't tell you that that's going to be safe long term, but we can tell you it probably means you could avoid the brain tumor or the acoustic neuroma, which is another common tumor associated with these, these exposures. It's a tumor on the auditory nerve of your ear, and it's a benign tumor. Um, it's, that's the nerve that provides hearing into your brain. also affects balance. Yeah, well, when I say that, that these are benign tumors, they're not malignant tumors, the gliomas, the other kinds of tumors, kill people so fast and so reliably that the problem in doing the studies is that people don't live long enough to interview. So the numbers we have and we've given you probably aren't high enough. But for the acoustic neuroma, which is only the tumor on the auditory nerve of your ear, the surgery for that will give you a, a terrible choice for life. First of all, you lose the hearing in that ear. But you can choose the surgery where you have facial paralysis on that side of your face, or you've lost your balance and you have vertigo for life. That's a terrible choice, and this happens to young people. Well, what, just to put this in perspective, how many of these per thousand people in the population are we talking about? I mean, if, let's say a thousand people used, because what you're saying is scary. All right, and I don't want it to be unnecessarily scary. So I know it increases the risk, but I'm just trying to get a sense of what is the baseline risk for acoustic neuroma and what does it go up to with uh, over 10 years of cell phone use? I could better, I don't have acoustic neuroma statistics in my head, but right. I do have some that I can share with you for the gliomas, the malignant okay. brain tumors. Yeah, yeah. And these are, these are European numbers, and I, don't, mm. I, I have no reason to think they would be different in this country, mm -hmm. but I'll qualify it by saying uh, they're from the Scandinavian countries. And they use a base number of about, you know, for background brain tumors, about 1 in 10,000. Right. And that's probably including more kinds of brain tumors than gliomas. So a doubling or a 240% a increased risk, would, let's say it would double that, so there would be 2 in 10,000. But the numbers that are important, I think, for public health implications are these. How many people worldwide use cell phones? Well, that's true. No, no. Yeah. I absolutely buy the argument that if it goes from 1 in 10,000 to 2 in 10,000, 
that as a public health issue, it's a big deal. But for you and your friends, I mean, I don't, the world is a scary enough place from my point of view. For, for you and your friends, I would think that if somebody said to you, you know, if you use that cell phone all the time, your chances of this brain tumor goes from one in 10,000 to two in 10,000. And you'd probably say, you know what? I can live with that, you know? Maybe that, that's not a very persuasive argument for me. Now, I would also say that the collective effect of all the electromagnetic fields that we're exposed to, plus all the non-cancer impacts of holding this thing to your head, uh, I personally can feel the distance when I've held a cell phone to my head. A lot of people feel a little buzzy or weird, and I don't think it's good for me, so I use a wired speaker and hold it away from my body. But I just think there's enough fear in this field that when we properly start talking about surgeries that paralyze your face and stuff, let's get a baseline straight. You know, let's make clear that these are very unlikely events that at, at a population level they matter. But for you as an individual young person, you might decide yeah, the, the precautionary things that are being suggested here make sense to me, not because I think I'm going to get a brain tumor, but because I don't like the way this makes me feel and there's a lot of, and there are safer things I can do without changing my lifestyle. I'm just sort okay. of pushing the other side of this argument yeah. a little bit. Yeah. To, well, let me, you know. let, let me agree with Michael and, yeah. then, and then further qualify the, the information I've given you, and that is, We've only got a short period of time to measure for the effects of cell phones inducing brain tumors. And the numbers I've, I've given you are based on not too much more than 10 years latency or 10 years exposure. Right. All right. What we know about other carcinogens that cause brain tumors, like x-rays, is that normally it takes from the time you have a, an x-ray or a series of them to that brain tumor it induces, it, it may be 20 years. Or 30. Or longer. Maybe a long time. So what we're, here's what we're worried about, and we really can't answer the question yet, how much will your risk be lifetime? Because we're only beginning to see the beginning of the rise. This is so effective, a carcinogen. This radio frequency, or ELF, is so effective, a carcinogen. We're seeing it at only 10 years and not 20 so the concern is that the risk may be much higher and we don't yet know. And there you're stuck. You know, what do you do with I don't know? You be careful. Okay, I'd like to, you haven't had a chance to speak yet. Go ahead. Um, many electronic devices are powered by transformers that are plugged in the wall, those little cubes. And I know those put out a good deal of electromagnetic radiation. Are they something like the equivalent of your compact fluorescent bulbs as far as uh, harmful effects, or no, are they not? No, they are not. If you, uh, if you, as we did today, if you do a quick little survey and you measure a transformer, the little black boxes, you know, that charge things, mm -hmm. you can measure three or four or five hundred milligauss right next to it. Mm -hmm. But by the time you're a foot or 18 inches away, you're back down to ambient. So it's a very small and localized field. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, you don't want to be sitting at a desk where you have your knees up against a bank of those. Mm -hmm. So a little distancing does a good job. And as far as I know, they don't produce any dirty electricity back onto your system. Okay. Thank you. Hold your mic up. Yes. Um, well, 
uh, field radios and walkie-talkies and so forth have been around for since the 40s. And, and so I'm wondering if, um, because it's so important to get long-term data, um, whether there's been any, any retrospective studies of, of folks who've used those as a regular part of their job, uh, security guards and military people and so forth, because, you know, knowing that the long-term data is so important, even though a retrospective studies not as controllable. But the exposure assessment going back on studies like that would be very difficult. What we do know is, is what you're saying. There's a, like, even on the little Motorola walkie-talkies, there's a very high radio frequency field from the antenna. That's why we recommend people, if you're going to use them, point the antenna away, not near your eyes, but away or down. But going back, it would be very difficult, and I, I know of no studies that have actually pulled out data on, on walkie-talkies and two-way radios, but when they've been done on ham radio operators with a, a stable antenna source, and you can, all, you can approximate those fields, there's certainly an increased risk of cancer for them. I want to ask Susan Braun, any comments or listening to this that you've... It just, it, when you talked earlier about this being perhaps 10 years um, behind, not in a pejorative way, what we have learned about toxic chemicals, it just, it, that rings so true, just like so many things that we've learned in, that cause health effects and ill health effects. Um, so often we begin by being skeptical, and rightly so, you know, we want to get good data and where people have to learn not only um, to gather the data, but to analyze it appropriately too. So it takes a little bit of time. But to see um, the things, the pieces that you're putting together now that are being put together in science, um, and think about how we learned about tobacco and how we've learned about toxic chemicals and what we're learning here, and see them, I think, along a continuum. Um, it's, I think it's very important, and I hope that we're going to get to this a little bit more quickly than we did to to some of the others too. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. and, go ahead. I was going to say that um, there's a there's a really excellent publication that some of you might want to download off the web that was written by the European Environmental Agency. It's a it's a book called uh, Late Lessons from Early Warnings, mm -hmm. and it evaluates, show of hands, any, has anybody reviewed this? Mary Beth and Jim have. Anybody mm -hmm. else here? Charles? Mm -hmm. Really an excellent book. What it, what it did was to take a number of different environmental uh, toxins or situations uh, globally where we had early indications of trouble coming and we didn't pay attention. And what happened? And uh, BSE is one, DES is one, uh, lead is one, and, yeah. And they're short chapters, and they're 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 written in a very you know understandable way. And they say we knew way back in 1930 this much, and we and 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 we knew we were headed for trouble, but the industry got in there, and no research was done, or or faulty research was done and submitted by the industry, and it confused regulatory action, and it took 60 years. When the European Environmental Agency looked at our report, and in fact one of the chapters was written by a senior staff member at EEA, they looked at this and they said, you know, this has all the markings of another one of those troublesome contaminants that we should do something about. But it's going nowhere. 
because the industry doesn't have to listen. They keep moving on and deploying more and more and more new technologies that provide us with this layering of exposure. So every six months, it gets more difficult to do a, a good controlled study of just one layer, one exposure. And we may, we may be a, past a point in time where we can do this. The other problem with, with um, the whole issue of electromagnetic fields and the lack of research in this country on that, uh, on that topic is that there are certain applications of EMF that can be helpful. There are stimulators that can be used on bones that fail to heal and it helps them heal. So we're missing the benefits, but we're getting all of the dark side of EMF because the marketing is so far ahead of the science. So, When you say we're missing the benefits, Nancy, don't they use those technologies? Well, they do, but maybe there are more. I mean, there may be better ways to screen for breast cancer, for example, mm -hmm. than exposing women to ionizing radiation. Mm -hmm something that would involve, you know, a controlled EMF measurement of the electrical charge of cells in the breast. Now, when, when they have a beneficial thing, for example, bone healing, does anybody raise the question, well, we shouldn't use that even though it helps the bone heal because we don't know the mechanism? No. Right. No. So it's a, it's a reverse process. If it's useful, right. we don't insist on knowing the mechanism. If it's potentially harmful, we say, wait, we don't know the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cheryl Patton, any observations listening to this? Mm. I, one observation is, is how similar this is to uh, the mechanisms by, around chemical policy reform in that uh, you can make safer choices in terms of EMF, but you will be often in a neighborhood where there is Wi-Fi and sitting in a room with people with their cell phones on and so on and so forth. So you can get all kinds of exposures that not of, are not of your choice. So, and, and they, the cumulative exposure question is there too. I mean, levels can be set for safety in terms of uh, some of the radiation, but these things kind of build up and I'm sure they accumulate. Um, I was also thinking that it might be interesting to do, well, chemical policy happens when there's advocacy work. And, and it's difficult because we know that industry will halt any progress as long as there's an income stream happening. And we probably know, for example, more about bisphenol A than we did about DDT when it was banned in 72. I mean, easily mm -hmm. we do in terms of mechanisms and sure. health outcomes and so on. But we know that industry's behind it. So I'm just was thinking about what could you do with uh, EMF, and I'm wondering, it seems to me it would be possible to start measuring DNA a damage in firefighters by taking a, uh, inner cheek cells and doing uh, that with firefighters uh, who are living under these towers of, uh, and, and those that are not, and would be interesting to have them start talking about their concerns about it, because I think there's a great case to be made that we should be protecting those that are protecting us. We yeah, absolutely should. Yeah. We absolutely should, but firefighters are, well, they're like all of us, they have many, many different exposures, and so D did the DNA damage happen from EMF exposure or to the burning plastic that exposed them to dioxins or all of the other? 
things. I don't know how you, you sift have to that out. out. and see if they weren't biomarkers that might be specific. Yeah, like a fingerprint yeah, sort kind of thing. Fingerprint. I'm yeah. not sure whether there is or not. But yeah, if you could do that. Firefighters Union, it would be not so hard. Yeah. It's a great suggestion. And actually, we went down that road pretty far uh, about five years ago. What we did was to do um, um, blood sampling um, that, that we then looked at in terms of DNA damage for a number of areas where there were, there were either very large sources, like at Lookout Mountain in Colorado, where you had a neighborhood around huge AM, FM, and television towers. Mm -hmm. And there was, a, there was a, a perceived increase in cancer risk, particularly for brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea was to test the blood of people who were exposed and not exposed because they were behind something. They were, they, they were, they were proximate, but they didn't have the exposure versus those homes who did. Mm -hmm. And the results were very interesting. A DNA comet assay test is one where you look at um, the, the, the amount of fragmentation of DNA. It makes a pretty little picture on your slide with you know, a cell, and then you see the longer the tail, or that's why it's called a comet assay, the longer the tail or the comet you know, appendage on, on that cell, the more DNA damage there is. And you can sort of look at one and say, that ought to be a 40-year-old, or that ought to be an 80-year-old in terms of, of damage. And what they were finding in, 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 one, in one child, I remember, he was, a, he was an 8-year-old child who had the DNA of, of, um, of someone who was over 50 mm -hmm. with very high exposures. And in fact, the brain tumor risks were higher than they should have been there. And they had a lot of markers for chronic uh, cancer impact and other neurological uh, damage. Mm -hmm. But again, having the data didn't make for change with the local um, you know, state utility that continued to approve new and more powerful transmitters. And in that case, it was a matter of um, you know, people choosing to move to protect their families and to lose their investment mm -hmm. or to stay and risk health effects. And, it, and when we talk about health effects, remember, we're not just talking about those who ultimately get cancer. Or, or Alzheimer's or a neurological disease. We're talking about functional changes in people's ability to reason, to think, to lay down memory, to communicate, and to function as human beings, to do their daily work. And so we shouldn't shortchange the short-term effects because they too can be serious, and particularly in those children that we send to school to learn. You know, it doesn't make very much sense to expose them to things that get in the way of that learning, does it? Cindy, uh, I want to just ask each of you a closing question, and then we'll have time to chat informally. I know there are more questions some of you would like to ask. But I'd like to ask each of you, um, starting with you, Cindy, um, you've devoted so much of your life to this work. What is the fundamental reason that you choose to take your precious time on Earth and use it this way? Why, why do you do this? Well, this is not a field that I chose. Uh, it's not a field I originally trained for. And I think the motivation is that there is such a, a, um, an issue of fairness in this. You know, I'm a scientist. I'm a Western-trained scientist with a, you know, a, a, a long practice who didn't need the controversy. Life would have been nice without it. But no one, no one that I knew was out practicing science in the public interest. And that's what I wanted to do. And I got good at it. And I found that there weren't very many people on this planet who don't work for industry or who wouldn't 
ultimately take industry money. And I think the motivation that keeps it going is that you see the work that we can lay down, that Nancy and I can lay down, because this is what we do best, then go, th this information goes out to people, not just in California, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Groups that start, that need our little boost, and then they can take on their own advocacy process from a position of scientific and public health information and integrity. And that's all we have to do. And I feel very successful, not just as a scientist and a business owner, but as a mom and a, a grandmother-to-be in about a month. I, I really feel like I've done my job on the planet in a way that brought integrity to my life. And I don't think there's any higher calling I could have had. Um, I could have made more money working for industry, but it wouldn't have been nearly as satisfying. And Michael, thank you, because you gave us a home from which to perch and preach. Hmm. Well, I came to this issue through my, my personal experience of cancer. I was one of those people who thought that cancer happened to other people. And um, so I was terribly surprised that it could happen to me. But I was raised by a uh, mother who loved Rachel Carson and understood the connection between how we live and where we live and what happens to us. And so um, I began to look at breast cancer as an environmental illness and looked at my own history and, and saw probably the places that gave my cancer a start. And then I got to work with Michael Lerner and Commonweal and, and with Cindy, and I saw this whole thing coming together under Che when it was not just about breast cancer, it was not just about cancer, but it was about this whole host of chronic illnesses that this country and, and the world is, is suffering from. And there are so many things in common because if you take the, the ideas that timing of exposure matters, mixtures of exposures matter, and that the world is too complex to make a pie chart and say, okay, environment causes this percent and occupation causes this. It's a whole web of factors together with our genetic makeup and all of that. And I saw EMF as the issue that really needs a champion because a lot of organizations and people are working on chemicals, but nobody wants to talk about this because you can't see it, or taste it, or smell it. So how can it be real? But it is real. And so it's been a, a wonderful collaboration to work with Cindy and Michael and Che and um, I'm just trying to change the world, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> For these three grandkids. <laughs> Cindy Sage, Nancy Evans, two great pioneers of environmental public health. Thanks for being with us at the New School. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.com.
org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.